All right, who's ready to get in God's Word this morning? Would you say amen today? Amen. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew's not difficult to find. It's the first gospel in your New Testament, the first book of the New Testament. And we continue a series uh, in the first part of the gospel of Matthew, the first four chapters specifically entitled, Then Jesus Came. It's about the birth and the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that'll carry us through the month of January. And so join us in Matthew chapter 1. We began last week with actually a message uh, from Isaiah in the Old Testament, which kind of pointed to what Matthew was going to be talking about right out of the gate as we open the pages of his gospel. And today we're going to look uh, for just a few minutes at a Savior with a family history. Many of you here this morning may be very interested in your family ancestry, your family line. We live in a day and age where studying one's family ancestry is probably more popular than it's ever been before. And that's because of the ease of availability of information. Used to, you had to go to courthouses and libraries and dig among paper, uh, uh, paper records for hours in order to find a single smidgen of information. Well, now, almost all of that stuff is available uh, with the click of a finger and a $250 contribution. Can I say, <laughs> have an amen this morning? Uh, but it is easy. Uh, having said that, I'm not sure that the majority of Americans really care all that much. It's more popular than it's ever been, but I think that by far most Americans don't really have that much of an interest. I mean, most Americans, and maybe some in the room today, tend to have the attitude, I got more living relatives than I can keep up with right now, much less all the dead ones, right? Uh, and yet, there is an interest. We want to know who we are, and we want to know where we've come from. Uh, uh, together, Judy and I went to her office Christmas party where she works at one of our medical centers here in town. We were sitting at a table, and this very subject uh, came up out of nowhere where people started talking about utilizing one of these services to find out, you know, what, what their ancestry is like. And I haven't done that, but my brother did it, and he sent me the results. And I figured since we came from the same mother and father, the results were the same. And I was happy for him to pay the $250. Amen. And so as you can imagine, I mean, I'm just as lily white as I look. Mostly British, Scottish, Irish. 12% Scandinavian. Uh, and yet we were talking at the table and there was a young nurse, very professional, and she said, well, I did one of those and paid all this money for it and I'm not happy with those people at all. And I said, well, why not? She said, well, they told me that I was 40% Neanderthal. <laughs> I thought she was making that up until she showed it to me. Sure enough, I mean, how do they know you're a Neanderthal for crying out loud? And what a slap in the face to be told that. You're nothing more than a modern-day cave person. Amen. Most people really probably don't have that much time to devote to it. And, and maybe that's why when it comes to the Gospel of Matthew, we open our Bibles to chapter 1. Maybe that's the reason that so many of us try to speed read through the first 17 verses of Matthew. Get past all those names that are really difficult to pronounce. And let's just get on to the good stuff. But let me say this morning, not paying attention to the genealogy that's listed in the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1 would be a big mistake on your part. 
Because in this family history of the Lord Jesus, you'll find revealed right here in the passage we'll look at this morning, many of the basic tenets of Christianity and of the gospel itself. And for that reason, much to many of your chagrin, we're going to read the whole thing this morning as we stand together and honor the reading of the Word of God. Fear not, I'll do all the pronouncing for you. This is the word of the Lord. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amenadab. And Amenadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon from, or to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God. And all God's people said, Father, bless not only this reading of the word, but now the exposition of it, that your name may be glorified through Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you, Hillcrest. You may be seated. Now, if you don't get anything else out of the reading of that passage, one thing that you should come to the conclusion uh, is that Jesus had a family history. Uh, that he didn't just pop out of nowhere like a genie out of a bottle. 
he had a family history. And the question that we want to address today is why is that important? There are a number of ways to approach this. Lots of information. This was actually quite a difficult passage to prepare because for everything that I'm going to include in this teaching this morning, I probably left at least two, maybe three times as much on the cutting room floor today that I could have talked to you about. It's that rich in terms of what it teaches concerning the Christ. And so what I'm going to do today is try to answer the primary question, why is this genealogy in the Bible and why is it important to us in the 21st century today? And to do that, I'm going to ask and attempt to answer four other very important questions, beginning with this first one. What is the purpose of Matthew's gospel? Because I think you have to understand that to understand why he includes a genealogy. You should be aware that Matthew, of course, is one of four gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus that we have in the New Testament, that begin the New Testament. Matthew, say them together with me, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Sometimes these are referred to as biographies of Christ, but they're really not biographies of Christ in the true sense of the word because there's far more that's omitted from the life of Christ in any single gospel than is included by the gospel writer about the life of Christ. Um, The gospel writers were very selective, and obviously they had to be. Sometimes you'll read the gospel accounts, and you think, boy, these are just, these are long. You know, it'll take a while to get through. Well, think of what they would be like. In fact, John says that at the end of his gospel Dude and dudettes, man, if I included everything I know about Jesus, not every library in the world wouldn't be able to contain all the volumes. So these are very selective accounts, and each of the gospel writers has his own purpose that he's trying to achieve. They're writing to different audiences. They're presenting different facets of the diamond, who is Jesus Christ, so that when you put all four gospels together, it glistens like that diamond that many of you ladies are wearing on your hand. Not every cut is exactly the same. But boy, when you put them all together, they sure represent a very a beautiful thing indeed. And this is, these are the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ. Of course, we believe that the Holy Spirit is superintending over all of that and guiding each gospel writer in terms of what he ultimately decides to include about his perspective, his unique perspective of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you need to know about Matthew, and I don't have time to do a full explication of the background of Matthew's gospel, we'll touch on some of these as we go throughout the series. But Matthew is a Jew, and his primary audience is composed of Jews. Now that's something that you need to keep in mind because that'll come to bear directly on the genealogy. His primary audience is Jewish people who either have just become followers of Christ or who need to become followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew's overarching purpose is to present Jesus as the long-awaited king of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. We know that because Matthew, as a Jew, includes all of these Old Testament prophecies all throughout his gospel to show to this Jewish audience that the one those guys all talked about, like we read in Isaiah last week, it's this one right over here whose name is Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment. He is the sovereign king they promised us. He is the one who would sit on David's throne forever and ever and ever. And knowing that helps us to come to an understanding of why Matthew begins his gospel 
the way that he does. Now, with that understanding, that takes me to a second question this morning, namely, what's the point of including a genealogy? Now, I know the genealogy doesn't make for the best reading, but it really is important, especially when you consider Matthew's primary audience being Jewish people. Uh, to make his case that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was this promised king who would sit on David's throne forever, he presents to his audience a thoroughgoing Jewish genealogy that was not only necessary for Matthew to accomplish his purpose in writing the gospel, it was absolutely critical. Notice, first of all, how the genealogy is structured. Matthew carefully organizes this genealogy as a triad. It's in your Bible in groups of three, three sets of 14 generations each that Matthew summarizes for us in the 17th verse. The first is the 14 generations from Abraham, the father of Israel, all the way to David. Then the second set of 14 generations is from David to the Babylonian captivity when Israel was conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and most of them carted away from the Jewish homeland there in Israel to live in a scattered existence all over the Babylonian empire. And then the final uh, summary of 14 generations is from the Babylonian captivity up to the arrival of Jesus uh, himself. And so this is more of a, when you read the genealogy, it's more of a comprehensive summary of Jesus's family history. Because not every single name in Jesus' line is included. There's also a genealogy in Luke's gospel. And it will read a little bit differently than Matthew's gospel. And so it's not, Matthew's is not an exhaustive genealogy. He's structuring it. It's absolutely accurate in terms of what he includes. But he's structuring it in a very specific kind of way that has everything to do with this Jewish audience to whom he's trying to convince this Jesus is our long-awaited, promised king. The number 14, of course, was significant because when you divide 14 by 2, what do you get? Seven, and would you agree with me that seven is a pretty important number, those of you that have studied the Bible? It's a number that represents perfection or the number that represents completion. And so 14 represents two sevens, kind of intensive, perfect, perfect, kind of thing, and the fact that Matthew gives us uh, six of these sevens is very significant, and Jews who were very well read would be careful to notice this guy's going out of his way to do some Hebrew numerology going on here in a way that kind of tells us that this Jesus that he ends with is kind of a perfect being, amen. There's something special about this guy. There's something perfect. There's something complete. And so every Jew that would have read the way Matthew is organizing this genealogy would have clearly read into what Matthew is trying to communicate, namely, this is our coming king. This, is part, this guy's coming is part of the eternal plan of God that we've got in our Hebrew Bibles represented by the forecasts of the prophets. He is our Messiah. He is sovereign Lord and he is sovereign king. And you see that in Matthew's emphasis on David, who aside from Christ is the most important person mentioned in this genealogy. Get this. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. You start counting down the list of the line, David is number 14. He's the 14th name mentioned. 
And if you take the consonants, the non-vowels of David's name, and you assign them the Hebrew numeric representation, which there was a numeric representation for every uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet, you add up the numeric value of David's name, and guess what you end up with? 14. So you got three sets of 14s going on here. David's is the 14th name, and the numeric value of David's name is 14. Would you not agree that David is probably a pretty important character going on here? And this is not, listen, I'm not into the biblical numerology. I, I really don't study that all that much. But I've got a library filled of Matthew commentaries of some of the most uh, exalted scholars. And almost every single one of them point this out with absolute clarity. So David's a pretty important part of this family tree. And you should want to know why. Well, remember, what had God told David all the way back in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 7? God told David, there will be a blood descendant of yours to set on your throne for how long? Forever. That's right. Look, for example, 2 Samuel 7, beginning in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. I will call him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure. How long? Forever. Before me, your throne shall be established. Say it, please. Forever. Now, that son has an immediate uh, connotation, which is Solomon. Of course, that would be Solomon. David's kingly line would come through his son Solomon. But I think that you would agree that somebody else has got to be involved. And you know why somebody else has to be alluded to there? Because Solomon wasn't going to live forever. Amen. He was going to live a limited number of days and then he was going to die. So there had to be somebody else who would carry that torch forever. And that somebody else that God would raise up from David's line was who the prophets talked about later. That was the servant that we discussed last week. The suffering servant of the Lord, the anointed one, the Messiah. And is that not exactly the way that Isaiah the prophet said it would be? Isaiah 9, very familiar. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the white said out loud, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be, say it out loud, please, no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, from this time forth, and what? Forevermore. There you go. So Matthew is clearly presenting Jesus as a descendant of David. The apostle Paul does the same thing in his introduction to the Romans, letter to the Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, concerning his son, a descendant of David, according to the flesh, raised to be the son of God in power through his resurrection from the dead. And it's that Jesus that Matthew is pointing to here who would establish David's throne forever for the people of God. And here's the thing. Y'all still with me? Say amen. The genealogy is critical in showing that. That's why he starts with it. 
because it's <clears throat> that significant. Now, let me pose a third question this morning. What does the genealogy tell us about the place of Jesus in history? What does it tell us about not only who Jesus is and where Jesus came from, from a physical descent standpoint, what does it tell us about his place in history? You know, there have been a lot of great people born in history, great kings, great conquerors, great presidents, great leaders. Where does Jesus fit in this panoply of uh, significant leaders and people of history who have been since there has been recorded history? Well, this is something of a continuation of what we just talked about, but I think the genealogy is important because it roots Jesus' coming as a historical event. Anybody that would tell you, I don't believe Jesus was ever really born, I don't believe he was actually a real person, they don't have any idea what they're talking about. Jesus Christ was a real person, if it, regardless of what you believe about him in terms of his standing as God in the flesh, the incarnation of God in a body, Jesus was a very real person historically. His birth was something that happened, and he had a legitimate family line that went way back that was obviously traceable. And the who of this important historical event is very significant. Notice how Jesus is introduced by Matthew in the very first verse of his gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, there are four, four very distinct monikers there that you should notice. First, Matthew introduces this greatest person of all history as Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, is his given name, and it reflects his power to deliver. Back then, people chose names for very significant reasons. They understood what the name meant. We don't always understand the names that we give our children. Uh, but they always did because names mattered. Uh, and they gave the name, Joseph and Mary did, they gave him the name Jesus, not only because the angel told them to, but the angel gave them a very specific name that reflected who Jesus was and what Jesus had come to do. Namely, it reflected his power to save or his power to deliver his people. The name Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew. Anybody know what Jesus in Hebrew is? Joshua, Joshua. Was Joshua a deliverer? Took his people out of the barren desert, led them into the promised land. And it's interesting that God gives the Savior the very same name, Yeshua, which in Greek, of course, is Jesus. And it simply means Yahweh saves or the Lord is salvation. And that's why in the very next section, the passage we'll look at next week, Joseph was told in a dream, you shall call his name Jesus for he will what? Save his people from their sins. That's right. The second moniker that's given to Jesus is Christ. Now, we've tended to make that a part of Jesus' name, Jesus Christ, or sometimes we just say Christ. But that's not his name. It's a divine title. And uh, the word means anointed one. The Hebrew for Christ this is the second question on your pop quiz this morning. What's the Hebrew form of the Greek Christ? Messiah, that's right. Christ is Messiah, Messiah is Christ, one is Hebrew, one is Greek. And all throughout the Old Testament, of course, you know that the prophets uh, spoke of a coming one 
who would be the deliverer of God's people. Uh, we learned last week that he was the anointed servant of the Lord, and that's exactly who he was, the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the deliverer. Take God's people out of bondage and deliver them from it to a position of prominence and authority. And with this opening genealogy, Matthew loudly announces, here's what's happening, the deliverer has come. That one that they talked about, that one that they spoke of, that one that they said was coming, has come. And his name is Jesus. Third, Matthew identifies Jesus the Christ as the son of David. Son of David, which is a theme that we just unpacked a moment ago. So Jesus is not <clears throat> only our Savior, our Deliverer. Here's the thing. Y'all still with me? Say amen. He's a royal Deliverer. He's a Deliverer with a crown. He's a king in the line of David. And he will establish a throne that will last forever and ever. Don't you know all those images of thrones in the book of Revelation? Jesus is seated on one now at the right hand of God. Jesus will be seated on one again in a recreated new heaven and a new earth. Don't miss the throne. But to sit on a throne, you have to wear a crown. And with respect to biblical theology, to wear that forever crown, you have to be a descendant of David according to the flesh. And man, Matthew will emphasize Jesus, son of David, all throughout his gospel. Blind people will shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Pilate will look at him and ask him, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the son of David? All the way to the cross, where Jesus hung, dying on the cross, there above his thorn-crowned brow was a placard that read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. And then fourth, Matthew tells us this Jesus, who is the Christ, who is the divine son of David, was also the son of Abraham, which for the Jews was every bit as significant, if not more, as Jesus being in the line of David. See, Jesus being in the line of Abraham puts him in the line of the covenant. Because that covenant was made between God and Abraham to the people. And here's Jesus, whose ancestry goes all the way back even to Abraham, a man whom God called to be the very father of Israel, a man through whom God established an everlasting covenant that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. So y'all tracking with me? Say amen. Matthew presents Jesus, whose birth was an actual event that had to happen, and it had to happen this way in order to bring about salvation. Jesus was the fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. He was the Messiah, the promised king, who came in the royal line of David, the offspring of the Abrahamic covenant. That, brothers and sisters, is why this genealogy is not only important, it's why it's absolutely critical. Because the thing about the gospel is that the gospel teaches that we don't need a bunch of principles to save us. We need a person to save us. 
Now, so often in the church today, we want to make acceptance conditioned on keeping principles. And there are principles to obey and principles to keep, but not one of them can bring about salvation in the court of a righteous God. Now, it takes a person to do that. Principles and personal ethics will not do it. And see, that's what distinguishes Christianity from all of the other world religions. Because in all of the other religions of the world, what's important to that religion is that you keep the principles. You keep the ethics. You keep the commandments. And then you cross your fingers and hope that you've done a good enough job for God to accept you when you take your final breath. People are incidental to every other religion of the world. Take Islam, for example. Islam has a founder whose name is Muhammad, but Muhammad is not critical to the principles of Islam. Nobody will say you gotta follow Muhammad in order to be right with God. No, what they'll do is they'll present you five principles and say, keep these and you'll be right with God. You don't need Muhammad to be a Muslim, or Confucianism. Confucius is incidental to the principles of Confucianism. How do I be a good Confucianist? Well, you, you know what the principles are, and you try to adopt them and abide by them as best you can. You hope you're good enough when you get to the court of heaven for God to take you in. Same is true with Buddhism. <clears throat> you don't need Buddha to be a good Buddhist. You just understand what the principles of Buddhism are. And you try as best you can to live up to them. Keep, see, you see the significance of all of the world religions? They're all the same in that they teach. Keep the principles and you're in. Shirk the principles and you're out. But Christianity is unique because Christianity revolves not around a set of principles but around a person. Right standing with God and eternal life depends not on what we do for God by keeping a set of principles. It is determined by what God has done for us through the person of a, uh, of a man named Jesus firmly established in history. That person is Jesus the Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. And let me say this morning, if you take away that person, you are left with absolutely nothing at all. It's the person that matters. It's not what you do for God. It's what God has done for you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The anointed one, son of David, Son of Abraham, fulfillment of all scripture. Now let me conclude this morning by asking this question, and that is, what does the genealogy tell us about God's plan for salvation? Aside from what I just said, I'm gonna give you three very important things as takeaways this morning. One thing the genealogy reminds us is that salvation is accomplished by God's grace and only by God's grace. I wish I had time to go through a boatload of these names. But I don't have time to do that this morning in Jesus' family tree. But can I just say this morning, it's, kinda, it's something of a big mess. And I don't wanna make you feel really good about your crazy family. Because even Jesus had a crazy messed up family. I mean, I can look at what little bit I know of mine and based on what I know, George Washington is not in it. Abraham Lincoln ain't there. 
I can't trace my ancestry all the way back to Alexander the Great. Maybe I'm just as much a Neanderthal as that woman I had dinner with earlier this last week. I don't know. But I can tell you, here's what I can tell you about my own family and tree that I know for sure. There are more than a couple of rascals and thieves in there. I know that to be sure. I don't have one black sheep. I got a bunch of black sheep in my family line. And so did Jesus. Rahab is in there. Prostitute who got her life turned around by the grace of God. Amen. Tamar is in there. Intentional incest. If I told you the biblical story of Tamar, you'd have to get your kids out of here this morning. It's rated R. She's in there. Even David was an adulterer, murderer. David fell off the wagon for crying out loud. Abraham was outed as an adulterer in the book of Genesis and as a liar. And by the way, can I say Abraham was a Gentile moon-worshiping pagan before the Lord showed up in his life. No, this genealogy is full of outcasts, moral compromisers. Aren't you thankful this morning that God can save the morally messed up person? Because again, salvation is not based on what we do for God. It's based on what God has already done for us in Christ. I mean, even the author of this book, Matthew, was a dirty, low-life, stinking, tax-collecting IRS agent. He wanted to throw a dinner party for Jesus because Jesus went out of his way to show up to a tax collector and said, come follow me, get out of that booth, leave your money behind, trust me and follow me. And maybe this is the first time anybody outside of Matthew's mama had taken an interest in the man. And so Matthew wanted to throw a party and when he threw a party for Jesus, the only people he knew to invite was the bad lot of society. Adulterers and Tax collectors and cheats and thieves. See, the gospel, this is why the gospel is good news. It's why it's good news. Because it's centered on the grace of God alone. That can save even a messed up chump like me. Amen. So salvation is accomplished by God's grace, but the genealogy reminds us that salvation is intended for a wide global audience. The gospel is for everybody. <clears throat> Jesus came not only for the morally corrupt, but he came also for the ethnically diverse. So it doesn't matter what country you were born in, what color your skin is. Listen, one of the most amazing things about this genealogy, and I'm just going to say this at the risk of offending half the audience today, but one of the most you know, obvious things in here that the Jewish man probably would have done this when they were reading is that it's got some women in it. You didn't put women in genealogies in the first century because they didn't count. They didn't matter. You owned them. They did what they were told to do. And yet, here this genealogy of Jesus is filled with women. Ruth, who wasn't even a Jew, she was a Moabitist, a Gentile, until she married into the Jewish line through Boaz. Rahab was a Gentile, 
Bathsheba's name is not mentioned, but she's mentioned here as the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and most scholars believe that Bathsheba was a Hittite too, non-Jew. So was Abraham, as I mentioned a moment ago. Abraham was a Chaldean, modern-day Iraq, called by grace to be the father of the Jewish people. And once God had called him, God commissioned him. And what did he say? I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And then he turns right around to the same Abraham and says, and you will be a blessing. You'll take the light of my grace and you'll shine it to all people of the earth so that all people can be blessed through you and by you. And that, brothers and sisters, is the purpose of the gospel to this very day as the church is commissioned by Jesus at the end of Matthew's gospel to go and make disciples of all nations. So the gospel is accomplished by God's grace Intended for a global audience. And then third, as we read the rest of Matthew's gospel, we'll be reminded that salvation is conditioned on a right response. Salvation doesn't happen just automatically because God is a gracious God. God has put the pieces in place where salvation can happen in anybody's life. But it's always conditioned on a right response. There are three groups of people throughout Matthew that the author tends to highlight. Let me give you these three and we'll, we'll be finished today. The first group are those who deny Christ. And by the way, can I say these three groups of people that are highlighted in Matthew are in the house this morning. There are those who deny Christ. In Matthew's gospel, these are typically the Jewish religious leaders. They just don't want to have anything to do with him. They reject him, categorically reject Jesus, and then turn to their own principles as a means of currying right favor with God. So there'll be those who deny Christ. And then there's a second group in Matthew composed of those who observe Christ casually. Casual observers. of They're not hostile to Christ. In fact, there's a lot about Christ that's attractive to them. And in Matthew's gospel, this group is represented by the large crowds that followed Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, we learn that the crowds were so intense at times that people literally trampled one another to get a front row seat. But then you get to the end of the gospels, and when Jesus ascended into heaven, there was only 120 of them. Where did the tramplers go? Where did everybody else go? Well, they left when they didn't get what they wanted anymore or when the cost became too high. They scattered like the 5,000 after Jesus had fed them. Oh, they followed Jesus the next day, but they didn't want Jesus. They wanted breakfast. And when they didn't get it, they quickly scattered. Churches today are filled with people who still casually observe the Lord They delighted to come along for the ride and to sing the songs of praise as long as we make them feel good and don't preach too hard a gospel and as long as they can get out of Jesus what they want out of Jesus. But when Jesus gets too demanding, then their commitment becomes conditional and they quickly, like a meteor once burning bright, they hit the atmosphere and they flame out quickly and they're gone. Those who deny Christ, those who observe Christ. But then there's a final group in Matthew's gospel who follow Christ. They follow and obey 
Christ. And these are the disciples of Christ. You can't really call yourself a disciple unless you're totally sold out, totally committed to not only following Jesus, but obeying Jesus. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will find it. Are you committed to follow Jesus, even to death itself, if that's what he calls you to do? Because those who truly recognize Jesus for who he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, divine son of David, will leave everything as those first disciples did in order to follow Christ. Y'all still hanging with me? Say amen. amen. I'm done. <laughs> with this word, Matthew wants, then as now, he wants his readers to know this is who Jesus is. And he wants them to know that so they can make a right response to Jesus. Jesus, who is he? He's the center of all history. He's the Messiah of Israel. He's the Savior of the world. And may I say it this morning, what matters most is not what you have done or will do for him. What matters most is what he's done for you and your willingness to turn your life over to him and follow him no matter the cost.